Net-A-Porter presents The Incredible Women Podcast, Series 4, The Disruptors. After this, what are your plans? Uh, you know, I have such a busy week. I end up spending a lot of my weekends juggling between playing with Thomas, the tank engine, um, and um, texting and WhatsApping some of these women's rights activists. So it's a combination... Welcome to the new series of the Incredible Woman podcast. In this season, we are talking to women who are challenging the status quo, campaigning for positive change and forging their own paths in their own careers. From rebels and mavericks to modern leaders, these are the inspiring women of today and tomorrow. I'm Kay Barron, and I'm delighted to be joined by BBC World News presenter and correspondent Yalda Hakim for this episode of the Disruptor podcast. Now, Yelda has quite the story, and to me is the epitome of inspirational. So do bear with me while I wax lyrical about her for just a moment. Born in Kabul in Afghanistan, her family fled the country when she was only six months old, during the Soviet-Afghan War. They settled in Sydney, Australia, when she was still a toddler, but the country that they left behind never left her. In her early teens, she wanted to educate others on what was happening in Afghanistan, so her parents encouraged her to write for local papers, and Yalda has continued to tell that story and many others ever since. At just 23, she travelled to India and then back to Afghanistan to film headline-making documentaries for SBS Dateline, the Australian current affairs programme before becoming its co-host in 2011. Two years later, she moved to London to join BBC World News as a presenter and host of Impact with Yalda Hakim. She's reported from war zones, interviewed presidents as they embarked on peace talks in the Middle East, and last year, when the Taliban were at the gates of Kabul, as the government collapsed, the Taliban spokesperson called Yelda while she was live on air, and the interview that followed became a story in itself. But today she is here with me in a studio in London. Welcome, Yelda. I am delighted to be speaking with you today. What does the word disruptor mean to you? I think the literal sense, um, if you think about the definition of disruptor, it's someone who, you know, challenges and questions the norms. um, And and that requires courage and leadership. But if I step away and, and think about the word disruptor, I suppose in a climate and in a period in our societies where we feel so divided, we feel so tribal. Um, if you don't um, agree with with the views of someone else, you know, you're torn to shreds on social media or elsewhere. And I think it's really important to be able to have empathy, but a disruptor is someone who can say, hang on a second, it's okay if we don't agree on this. It's okay to have a contrarian view on something. It's okay to have a conversation. Let's have a conversation. Let's not shut people out because their worldview might be slightly different from our worldview. And I think that in itself requires courage and leadership in this uh, climate and context. And I think that is a, a disruptor. Well, what was it that drew you to journalism in the first place? Because I read that you were seven when you said that you wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I when I was back um, home in Sydney uh, this um, holiday season, I went through some of uh, my parents' things in the garage and um, I found old diaries, old photographs and notes and letters that my parents had written to me that I'd written in a diary. And um, I'd really made it quite clear from the age of about seven that that was my chosen vocation and then occupation, um, passion, love, um, everything, really. Um, sometimes people 
people say, you know, my job doesn't define me. But I think storytelling has become so much part of who I am. Um, and this has become so much part of what I do. I live and breathe it in many ways. And so uh, if I go back to seven-year-old me, um, it was very much wanting to understand what these people were doing on my television screen. They were going to faraway lands and telling extraordinary stories. And once it was explained to me by my father, um, I said, I want to do that, whatever it is. You returned to Afghanistan when you were 23 and took your parents as well as your assistants. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't take them. They showed up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you put them to work. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, you have to be enterprising in these situations. Um, I had virtually no money and no contacts. Um, but I decided that I needed my big break. And I taught myself um, as a young intern um, at SBS how to use a camera. And I first went to do a bit of a recce um, in India and did a story about surrogacy and Western women um, hiring wombs of, of Indian women to have uh, children um, through surrogacy. And when I felt confident enough after about two weeks there, um, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going ahead with this. And I called my parents from Delhi. And I remember the conversation because I said, I'm going to Kabul. And they completely freaked out. Um, first of all, they thought the trip had been um, set up by my um TV station, which okay. it hadn't been. No one knew I was leaving. I was using leave. And then they completely panicked about the idea of going to Kabul because, of course, they'd left it 23 years earlier, hadn't been back, hadn't um, had much of a connection with the country and been part of this diaspora as expats raising their family and their children in Australia, thinking they'd taken them away from that kind of war zone to safety. And here I was as a 23-year-old wanting to dive back in. It's not something that they could get their head around. And I think to this day, they can't really get their head around. Did they? I mean, I suppose then it, it was hard to know exactly what was happening there, because now I feel we've got more access to news. But I suppose back then, um, I mean, did they still have family there when, when you went? Yeah, so I met, um, so they, they showed up in Delhi, and then we flew into Kabul together. And for the next three and a half weeks, my father was my fixer. What um, does fixer mean? So a fixer is someone who basically is your local producer on the ground. Um, so they're negotiating f uh, for you the interviews, access, um, security. And so my father would just, you know, uh, turn up to whatever I had said I wanted to do and then help me figure out a way to film an opium den, for example. You know, um, wow, okay. so it was quite intense. And, um, you know, he, he went to the local police and said, look, this is what we're going to do. And, and I remember the police thinking, why? And what did it mean to your family to go back to? How did they feel? I think... Um, so my father had been uh, once during the period of the Mujahideen for a small window to help evacuate his family during the height of the conflict there. But it was the first time for my mother since she left as a 27-year-old. And so she was going back um, with her 23-year-old daughter now. Um, and, you know, I think she found um, it quite confronting. And I remember her, uh, you know, she'd lost her mother at that point and her father, and she was reconnecting with her own past um, as as a woman now with, with four grown children who'd spent 23 years away from the country. And I think she found that quite confronting. And I suppose in many ways had to almost cut the umbilical cord because that's the only way you can move on mm. and, and rebuild your life somewhere else. And I think she came to the realisation, it was almost like a reckoning for her, that her home and her life was where her family is and her immediate family. And that was in Australia. And she never went back. 
since since that visit. That's right, yes. And that she's got no desire to now. She doesn't have a desire to go back. And I think what happened on August the 15th and 16th on the, uh, during the fall of Kabul and those horrific scenes that we saw at the airport uh, with people literally plunging to their deaths and... Um, mothers handing small babies over the fence to um, U.S. military personnel. You know, uh, there is not one person across the globe that I know that I've spoken to who Mm. didn't feel devastated by what they were seeing. Is is this really what's happening in our world today? And as you say, we have such access to information. But when I spoke to my mother, I also sensed a trauma that I hadn't seen or heard ever before. Here Mm. is this stoic woman who raised children in another country and just got on with it. And suddenly she was dealing with her past, her flight from the country, her immigration, her leaving behind uh, her family and taking, you know, children out of out of a, a, a war zone. And I think in the 38 years that she'd been almost 40 years out of the country, it was suddenly something that she really saw replay before her very eyes. And and I think um, I understood why she then had cut ties with the country so many years uh, earlier. Because I think, I mean, you're exactly right, looking at those scenes, watching those scenes unfold on television and the scenes in the airport was just... it was so difficult to believe that it was happening now and heartbreaking for, for us to watch it. But for you to not only watch it, but also have to report on it and it's your birthplace, how do you, I mean, how did you manage not to get emotional about it when reporting it and stay objective? I did get emotional. I remember um, I was heavily engaged with uh, evacuation of some young students associated to my foundation. I have an education um, organization or NGO um, for um, young women in Afghanistan. I set that up in 2018. And so that week ahead of the fall, um, we sort of started to think about an evacuation plan of these young petrified uh, women who were ringing me night and day saying, we're so frightened. We've burnt all of our documentation that associates us with the Western world. They all went to the American University of Afghanistan. They had created an underground cellar for themselves to go into hiding. So, so many of these young women were so petrified and they kept saying, we have no contact with the outside world. The only person we know is you. And so, you know, I felt that, um, that sort of weight on my shoulders. And then you sort of fast forward to that Sunday morning. Um, And I remember it was four or five o'clock in the morning and we're still trying to work out an evacuation plan. I'd never been involved in an evacuation plan. I'm a journalist. I'd gone into countries, you know, where people were exiting and I was entering to to cover a story. So I was trying to figure all this out with with a small group of um, contacts and and part of my network. And, you know, they said, just rest for a few hours. This is a, a marathon. And I remember thinking, if I sleep and I wake up, you know, this whole society and country would have perhaps collapsed, fallen, Mm. we don't know. And I remember waking up to a call a few hours later from my editor who said, Kabul, uh, looks like Kabul's falling to the Taliban. They've reached the gates of Kabul. You need to come in right now and we need to cover this. And I thought, yes, I do. This is is a story, you know, that I'm um, well-versed in, I have experience in, I need to drive the coverage for the BBC. So I made my way to the studio and on the way I started to text the Taliban. Um, who, you know, obviously as a journalist, they're part of um, my contacts book and I've I've, um, interviewed them in the past and I've had contact with them. I've made documentaries about them. And I said, what on earth is going on? What are you doing? What are your intentions? What are the plans? And then obviously when I got in studio, um, 
I, the texting stopped on my part, but I had my phone on my desk. And then my phone rang. And tell us about that call. When your phone rang, you're live on air. What's that decision? What goes through your head then? In that split second, I had to make a very, very quick judgment call. And that was, sure, I'm interviewing all these people, commentators, analysts, ex-vet, you know, veterans, um, people in the military, policymakers, people trying to grasp their head around what is happening. And the while everyone's trying to guess what the Taliban are about to do, here they are on my phone. Mm. And they're the only people that, that the world wants to hear from now. So I, I, I press the green button. And I immediately put it on speaker. And, and because it was live um, news, I didn't even have time to tell my studio, uh, my team, that um, I need to go to this interview. So I just did it sort of rolling live. I said, we need to cut out this interview that I'm currently doing. And, and I, you know, I talked our audience and my team through it. I was almost talking my, my team through it as much as I was my audience, because I was thinking about, can we even hear this? You know, do we have um, the ability through the mic in the studio to pick up the speakerphone? Also, I don't have much charge left. So I almost, I, the floor manager, I, you know, he was coming around with a mic and no one knew what was going on and who was on my phone um, and why I had suddenly stopped other interviews. But they trusted me enough to go with it. Yeah. I mean, well, incredible trust. And then how how long did that interview last? I was going to hang on to that spokesperson mm. for as long as possible. It went for 40 minutes roughly. Um, and it was an impromptu interview. Um, so I hadn't set it up or thought about the questions or all I knew was that there was a lot of devastated, petrified people who'd lived a certain life for 20 years, who'd tasted freedom and their basic human rights. Sure, there was a, there was a lot of um, issues in the country, corruption, um, basic people's, uh, basic rights were being taken away in certain parts of the country. There were a lot of issues. This was a country at war. But it was a country at war with an insurgency um, that had launched large-scale attacks on the, the population. They were now at the gates. Um, and so I needed to then do what I do as a journalist, put my personal thoughts to one side because it's not about me. Those personal views are not important. This is now perhaps going to be one of the most important interviews of my life. There are millions of people watching, including many of those women and girls in Afghanistan who are so frightened. And I have someone on the line who can give us answers and I need to hold him accountable. Mm. And I know that you are a passionate advocate for women's rights. Um, and you touched on it earlier, but you've established the Yalda Hakim Foundation. So where did that come from and what what plans do you have for that? So that came um, in 2018 when I was uh, approached by the American University of Afghanistan. And they said, you know, a lot of the students here um, feel quite inspired by the path you've taken. And they see um, themselves in you as, as um, someone who has just taken these opportunities and made the most of it. They see that kind of future for themselves. And they're, they're in Afghanistan, but, you know, they're incredibly talented. We'd love to launch a scholarship in your name. And, and I remember uh, approaching my editors at the BBC and saying, look, they want to do this, but we should double check. Um, and so they were quite supportive and they allowed me to return to Afghanistan. I went to the university. I was completely blown away by how extraordinary these young uh, uh, women were. They were 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, they put on an extraordinary debate for me and, and um, uh, they had 
just the conversation, the flow of conversation, their aspirations, their dreams, what they wanted for their future was just so exciting. And I thought at that point, why don't we turn this into something on an ongoing basis, not a one-off or not just a scholarship that I'm not uh, connected with. I'd like to choose the students. I'd like to, um, you know, help um, understand uh, who these uh, kids are who are applying for this. And um, I wanted to make sure that it was given to the most disadvantaged students, but um, people who had the merit, just not the the means. Um, and so that's where that came from. And now we have a situation where we've um, evacuated um, uh, over a hundred students from the American. If you, yeah, if you've yeah, managed to evacuate yeah, them. Yes, we have to um, the American University in Iraq. Um, and now we're working with uh, various universities in America, and we've managed to secure over 100 scholarships for those students to travel to the United States and be educated. Um, so the work of the foundation took almost a humani- uh, humanitarian sort of role uh, while we evacuated, but it's returning now to um, the sort of the key um, fundamental foundation of it, which is education. How do you separate work from your personal life then? Because there is... Yeah, and I do understand, you know, if you say you're coming at things as a journalist, you want to tell that story, you need to get that story out there. But then you go home and how do you actually shut off from that? I have an extraordinary support network. I mean, I spent 90 minutes the other day talking about the new sex in the city, just like that, you know, um, and their clothes and the drama and what happened to Big and, you know, what's Carrie doing now and how I feel about Miranda. And that could be our second episode. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and in the midst of, of getting my hair and makeup done, preparing for an interview about, you know, the conflict in Ukraine and I can sit there and we can have these sorts of conversations, you know, and that can be my downtime. As, you know, can conversations with my girlfriends or other friends where we talk about childcare issues, marital issues. I mean, sometimes I say I find it more stressful when I have, when my nanny calls in sick. Um, I find that more stressful than being on a front line. And I genuinely do because suddenly I feel everything sort of collapsing around me and I'm trying to sort of figure out my life and how I can get myself from A to B. And having that support network um, to be able to do that that keeps me grounded and and helps me, um, as you say, um, decompress, let go, um, and and know that everything is relative. Just because I see famine in Afghanistan and small children dying, um, does not mean that you know I can't enjoy the small things in life that we have here, and we're so grateful for it. And that's the key word, that I'm grateful for it. And I also read that you write letters to your son um, and have done for since he was born. But are they almost like a, a form of therapy for you about where you've been and why you're doing that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know therapeutic for sure. It's like a diary entry. And I remember being in Syria when he was six months old and I remember I, you know, was still um, nursing him and I didn't want to run out of, of my milk while I was away for three and a half weeks. So I was pumping like mad across this country, across um, northeastern Syria at checkpoints and wherever we're going. And, and I'd be in an interview and I'd, you know, finish up the interview and I'd say to my security, um, I need to get back to the hotel. And they'd say, got it, you know. But also, you know, this stuff is gold and I, I didn't want to throw it, throw it out. Mm. And I remember going to an internally displaced camp 
and interviewing this mother who was talking about how she had kept her child alive to, and, and they fled this bombardment, but she'd given her child along the journey, her 10-month-old, mud water to keep him alive. And I said to her, Where, what, what do you have now? And she said, We're, all we have is God. We're just hoping for someone to turn up and, and uh, get us through this period. And I said to my, um, one of the, the female translators who was there, does she want some milk? And she said to me, you know, but are you a Muslim? And, and I said, but why does that matter? And she said, because culturally it will to her. And I said, no, you ask this mother whether she wants the milk. And she said to, to the you know, young Syrian woman, do you want her milk? And she said, yes, please. I don't care what you are. I need to feed my child. And I just remember that the joy we both felt because my milk wasn't wasted and she was able to feed her child. Which is an amazing story as well to tell your son when he grows up. To, I wrote to him about that. Which is just just wonderful. And actually, I was going to say um, about your, your son too. I mean, now, was he as a mother, can you imagine at 23 and he said, OK, I'm going to go to Afghanistan and I'm going to make a documentary. How would you feel? My um, parents were watching. So I was watching my son sleep and my parents were watching me watch him sleep. And I turned around and there they were at the door. And they said, how does it feel? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, one day he's going to pack his bags up and he's going to go to a faraway land. And, um, you know, he'll say bye, mom and dad, and that's it. And I said, I'll be fine with that. And they said, oh, we'll see. <laughs> so let's see. I think you're, you'll be a very overqualified assistant for him as well, <laughs> yes. depending on what path he takes. Um, when you're not working, how do you consume news? The news is very much part of what I do. It's a vocation. Um, I'm consuming it constantly. It doesn't leave me. Um, and the one thing I must say is I, I don't ever read um, fiction, which I feel sad about because I have a guilt. Um, mm. I sort of almost think I need to read nonfiction or a biography or a history book or to brush up on something. But I think the narrative of your life is probably a lot more interesting than lots of the fiction out there too. Uh, you know, I have met some of the most inspirational, extraordinary people um, in my line of work. I'll never forget um, 42-year-old Ghada from, from Mosul, who was uh, one of the Arab world's, um, uh, you know, part of one of the, the Arab world's oldest paragliding clubs. And I met her on the side of a hill just outside of Mosul, um, and she was she was flying. She was paragliding. And when ISIS swept through um, uh, the the city of, of Mosul and took over, she was executed. And she was just one of the most extraordinary, strong, powerful women. Um, but just like that, I have met so many amazing people on the way, along the way, and they continue to inspire me every single day. I was going to ask as well, I mean, you, you, you're obviously quite a successful planner, being that you're seven when you wanted to do what you're doing and you've excelled at it. Um, but what's next for you? Do, you? do you plan in the future? Do you think five years ahead? Or I, I do. I do. Um, it, it's sort of that's what helps keep me um, sort of focused and, and sane. Um, I'm not great at, say, planning a holiday or a restaurant reservation. Um, I'm always quite useless at that kind of thing. You just need your other half to do that for exactly. you. Exactly. And yeah. he's actually really good at that. So that works. Um, you know, I don't, I kind of think, oh, oh my God, we haven't sort of taken a, a, a holiday in months. Um, maybe we should take some time off and then he swings into action. Um, but I, I am um, someone who needs to sit down and really think about 
direction and where I need to go. And that helps me, I think, because um, otherwise I think you can get overwhelmed with everything that's going on around you um, and, and you sort of lose, you can lose perspective. And especially when um, the overwhelming amount of information that's coming my way in conversations I'm having are often about very dark, bleak things. Mm. Um, so sometimes you need to remove yourself from that, have perspective about where you want to go in life, whether it's personally or professionally. Because I think when you, well, I imagine, and from what you've said before too, that when you do go on holiday, you don't switch off. Off, You're, you're not there lying, lying on a beach reading fiction, clearly. Um, but is it just about clearing your head for, you know, you're always going to be available for, for the, the people that need to, to contact you. Um, and I think, you know, when reporting the news is such a huge part of your life and you're the face of it for so many people, um, I imagine you don't want to switch off. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, sometimes people sort of say, I heard you on the radio, weren't you supposed to be in Sydney? Um, or, or you wrote that piece, weren't you on leave? Um, and, you know, lucky for me in terms of the time difference in Australia, I would get started quite early in the morning, which was late in the evening here or um, early morning radio in Australia. And so I wasn't sort of hoping not to offend my family, you know, switch off, stop uh, responding to emails, stop having Zoom conversations. I try and do it in moments where, you know, I didn't feel like I was um, intruding on their time with me. Um, but I think that if I didn't, I would, that would, I, I would find that much more stressful. Mm. I think um, I gain strength from just continuing to do what I do. And moments where I feel like I'm not, I that's when I feel quite anxious. I, um, you know, when I'm not engaged, I feel quite lucky that especially what's happened over the last few months, that I do have this platform, I do have the networks, I do have the ability to make things happen. And so I don't want to walk away from that, not even for a split second at the moment because I feel such a sense of responsibility. And I'm not trying to be, you know, um, I, I don't know, noble or, um, you know, it's just it, it's how I'm I'm wired um at present, that may change. And certainly the pace um, in which I'm, I have gone, you know, um, I know how to switch off um, and I didn't know. I didn't have work-life balance 10 years ago. And I think in your 20s, you're building your career, you're focused – and and certainly in my in my 30s for me it was important you know that i i sort of spend time with my partner a lot more and and give time to that as well um, well, also in your 20s, you can do all of it. Yes. You can sleep, you <laughs> no, can just you no, keep exactly. going with it. Um, well, I mean, I can't wait to, to see where, where it brings you next. Um, but I was going to ask you as well, and who would you say is your disruptor of 2022? I know I've spoken a lot about Afghan women, but when you're staring down the barrel of a gun every day and you go out every day with a placard knowing that maybe, maybe you may not make it, and whether it's the disappearance of these these young um, women, where the family's saying that, that bodies are turning up, um, you know, riddled with bullets, um, accusations of, of torture, and, and I'm, you know, we're, we're not sure if it's the Taliban or if it's another group. They've denied um, uh, any kind of... Um, responsibility, but they are the de facto government and therefore you are responsible for your citizens. So if young women are being made to disappear, where are they and where is the investigation? And they need to be held accountable. And I hope that I'm able to continue to do that. But my disruptor of 2022 is an, uh, these courageous young women um, who 
you know, I think when you're confronted with your basic rights being taken away and you are willing to accept death to get it back and you're willing to take those risks in order to protect it for the sisterhood, um, for me, they remain a huge source of inspiration and they are the disruptors of 2022. Yeah, and I really hope that they get that privilege of platform as well so they can tell their own stories one day, and one day soon, hopefully too. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. I could talk to you all day. Thank you, Kate. You were wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. The Disruptors was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade, hosted by Netaporte's content director Alice Casely Hayford, and fashion director Kay Barron, produced by Rosie Stofer. The team at Netaporte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabel Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The senior producer at Chalk and Blade was Laura Hyde, and the executive producer was Ruth Barnes. Original music and mixes were by Alexis Adimora. Enter the code DISRUPTORS at the checkout for 10% off your first Net-A-Porte order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. To make sure you hear all the episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information, go to netaporte.com 